Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, we have been, as James said in his prayer in the last month, looking at our new purpose statement as a church, but now we are uh, back in the book of Romans. We're going to be here for the next couple of months, walking our way through uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, and so we do uh, encourage you to, to be present, to gather together with the people of God, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, that we might feast upon uh, this rich meal that God has provided for us in his word. So take your Bibles. Romans 8, I'll be reading chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Well, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the freedom of the gospel. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to stand firm in that freedom and that you would by your grace enable us not to let our freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. Oh Lord, use this glorious text to those ends. We thank you for the gospel of saving grace. We pray that those who hear my words this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ nor the freedom that is found in him, oh Lord, would you work through your word powerfully unto salvation. And for those who do know Christ by your spirit, would you enable us to know him more, to rest our souls, our weary souls, in the glorious gospel of free grace. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine this morning that you were a prisoner that you were a prisoner, you'd been in prison since your early 20s for a, a horrific crime that deserved the death penalty, but the, the judge showed mercy and he gave you a life sentence instead. For 40 years, you had been unable to do what you wanted to do when you wanted to do it. You wore an orange jumpsuit every day, you uh, had your schedule set for you. Uh, when you woke up, when you ate, uh, when you played, most of your time was spent in solitary confinement in your cell. Uh, imagine that you, know, you, you couldn't even go to the restroom when you wanted to go to the restroom, right? Even when you, you know, had good behavior, you made it to a work crew, still right, your life was, was not free. But then, say, imagine in your mid-60s, you were set free. The parole board granted you your freedom. You were released. But it turns out that adjusting to freedom isn't as easy as you thought it might be. You still wake up thinking and living even like a prisoner, perhaps. You struggle with making your own choices about what to do with your time and what to eat and what to wear. You get a job, but out of habit, because you've been a prisoner for 40 years, out of habit, you still ask permission to do the things that free people just do. You live a fearful life, a guilty life. Right? You're always looking around your shoulder, around the corner. You're wondering if you've done something to, to, to have to go back to prison because you've broken your parole. Perhaps at night you go to sleep and 
and you're beset by nightmares. You're reliving what you did 40-some years ago that got you into prison in the first place. And you know that what you deserve was death. And you wonder if you had paid enough to be free as you are. Now, hopefully none of you ever will really be in prison. They will never have to live out that story. But if you are a Christian this morning, it is possible that spiritually speaking, that little thought experiment, that imaginative story is something that you have lived out. And perhaps you are living it out even this morning. And therefore, What Paul has to say to you in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 this morning, could perhaps be the most important part of the Bible that you have ever read. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that some of you may be living out that thought experiment, but that this passage may be exactly what you need to hear this morning? Well, to answer that question, we have to remind ourselves how we got to where we are in Romans, right? We've been taking it in sort of big chunks. And so the, the problem with that is that we, we lose track of where we are. And again, we look at the very first word of, or the, the third word of this sentence, there is therefore. Right? Well, what is this passage there for? Right? To, to understand that, we do have to kind of go backwards in, in, in the book and, and remind ourselves what Paul has been doing to this point in the letter. You remember in chapters one to three, Paul has established and laid down the sinfulness and the hopelessness of all mankind without distinction and without exception. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and therefore, we know that we cannot achieve a righteousness of our own before the the Holy One of Israel. Paul tells us, right, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. So the only hope for sinners, Paul has told us, is to receive the righteousness that is outside of ourselves. Not the righteousness that we accomplish, but the righteousness that is freely given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Paul in Romans 3 to 5 has has spoken of this glorious gospel of justification by grace through faith. But then in chapter 6, you remember that Paul began to answer an objection to the gospel. Well, Paul, if what you were saying is true, Right? If we're saved by grace apart from obedience to the law, then doesn't that mean that the gospel gives us license to sin, license to live however we want? And Paul's answer was absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because when we trust in Jesus, we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. We have died to sin with Jesus Christ and been raised up to walk in newness of life. But then in chapter 7, Paul told us another part of the the truth that is true about us. It is true that we have been united to Christ, but it is also true that that though we have died to sin with Jesus, that doesn't mean that we stop sinning. Far from it. Paul has told us in Romans 7 verse 17 that, that sin still dwells within the believer in Jesus. And thus he's told us that the Christian life is a life of great conflict with sin. It's a life with great conflict with the flesh, our our worldliness, our worldly desires, our this worldly desires. Paul says in Romans 7, we still do the things that we do not want to do. Even when we want to do the right thing, evil lies close at hand, he tells us in verse 21 of chapter 7. He says, we delight in God's law in the inner man. But there's another law waging war within us, another ruling principle, the law of sin that dwells in the members of our body, that even makes us a captive, he tells us in verse 23. 
And so when we experience this clash within, we cry out with Paul in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in verse 25, Paul gives the triumphant answer, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ our Lord. But notice that despite Paul's confidence and his triumph in that answer, you notice that he ends verse 25 by summarizing again the Christian struggle. So then, he writes, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so when we come to the end of Romans 7, we may be left with a sense of unease in our hearts. Does our ongoing sin undo the work of grace within us? Does it constitute a parole violation that might bring us back into prison once more? Are we to live in constant fear and, and guilt? Even though God says that, that we're saved by grace, can we really ever be certain of what God thinks about us? Since we keep serving sin, as Paul says there at the end of verse 25. And does this indwelling sin really make us helpless in the end? So that we will always sin and sin and sin. And we might as well just stop trying to live a godly, righteous life. You see the questions that arise as we come to the end of Romans 7 and embark upon Romans chapter 8. And so we need to come to this chapter, don't we? Now we're ready to hear this chapter, arguably the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the greatest book called the Bible, right? It begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And throughout this chapter, the message of no capitulation resounds forth. It's filled with assurance and hope and freedom and joy for the struggling believer. Like a symphony returning over and over again to its theme, Paul here at the beginning of Romans 8 opens this majestic passage by reiterating three familiar melodies. First, he wants us to see the freedoms of our union with Jesus Christ, namely justification and sanctification. Secondly, he wants us to see the foundation of our freedoms, namely the incarnation of the Son of God who was sent to die. And thirdly, he wants us to see the fruit of our freedoms, that is the sure hope of holiness because of the Holy Spirit who is stronger than sin. So the freedoms of our union with Christ, the foundation of our freedoms, and the fruit of our freedoms. Now, each one of these verses in this entire chapter could have a, a sermon to itself, right? But I'm not going to do that to you. All right, we're going to take it in about nine or so sermons. We're going to work our way through it. We're going to hopefully focus in uh, more particularly when, when verses demand it. But we're going to try to make our way through this glorious chapter together in good time. So let's look first at the freedoms of our union with Christ, verses 1 and 2. Look at what Paul writes. There is therefore, in light of everything I've just said in, in chapter 7 and really all of 1 to 7, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. To believers struggling against indwelling sin day after day, doing what they don't want to do, Paul sounds this assuring note of freedom. Freedom from the penalty of sin, the guilt of sin, 
and freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the penalty of sin, no condemnation, justification, and freedom from the power of sin, right? the Spirit's life-giving and liberating deliverance, sanctification. Both of these freedoms, you notice, are found in Christ Jesus through our union with our risen Savior, our oneness with him by faith. This union is all important. I love the way that John Calvin has, has explained it. We must understand, he writes, that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. But if we are in Christ, if we are united to Jesus Christ, if Christ is in us by his spirit, then there is the truest and the deepest of freedom. God first has delivered us. He has freed us from the penalty of sin. Paul here is saying that in spite of our original sin and in spite of our past sins, in spite of our present sinning, in spite of our future sins, through faith in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. We have peace with God. We are freed from guilt. We are no longer guilty. We are forgiven. So that even though our, our ongoing sin is deserving of punishment, yet we are free from condemnation. We are free from fear of the wrath of God forever. No death sentence can ever again be declared against us, nor will a death sentence ever be executed against us. For God has declared us to be righteous, to be guiltless, to be innocent in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been attributed, imputed, credited to our account. And because Jesus has endured the full measure of God's wrath against sin in our place as our substitute, so that Paul, we jump ahead to Romans 8, verse 33 and 34, can write these words, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? For Satan to stand up to accuse you the way that he did Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, God would say to Satan about you exactly what he said about Joshua. He would say to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not a man, a woman, a boy, a girl whom I have saved from fiery destruction? Have I not removed his filthy garments and clothed him with a glorious robe of righteousness, the righteousness of my own son? And yet, how many of us live day by day as if we were still prisoners how many of us live as if we were still under the sentence of death, still under the condemning wrath of God, like a sword hanging over the man's neck about to be executed? How many of us forget that in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, that we're freed from the penalty, the guilt, the shame of sin, and so that when that guilt and when that shame well up in our hearts, we can take it immediately to the Lord Jesus and be reminded once again that we are free. There is no condemnation. Do you live as if God might change his mind about you? 
Do you struggle with the dread of, of wondering what God thinks about you and therefore you better not mess up? You better not admit that your life looks more like Romans 7 than, than other people might think. Paul says, you are free. You are free. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are free from fear. You are free from guilt. You are free from the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation for you forever. Walk in the confidence and the comfort of that freedom. Maybe you're thinking, well, Caleb, what you're saying, though, that's great, but, but does that mean, then, that, that we can walk according to our own heart's desire and we can do whatever we want to do and live however we want to live? Well, one way to answer that question is, yes, what do you want to do? How do you want to live? But the other way to answer that question is, Absolutely not. We can't just do whatever we want to do. Because what, look at what Paul says in verse 2. In Christ Jesus, God has freed us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. When Paul here speaks of the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death, he's not using the word law the way he uses it in verse 3 to refer to the Mosaic law, the law that God delivered to all mankind, particularly to his people on Mount Sinai, but, the, but was the, the moral law applicable to all mankind. No, here in verse 2, Paul is using the word law the way he did back in chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, as, as an impelling principle, as a, a, a ruling and binding power and authority. Paul is saying the power of the life-giving spirit, the, the reign, the rule of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power, the reign, the rule of death-producing sin. Here, Paul is going back to what he said in chapter 6. He's asserting once again that those whose sins are forgiven in Christ, who are justified in Christ, are also regenerated in Christ, are also made new, made alive, given new hearts by the Spirit in Christ. We are set free from sin's slavery. We are set free by the Spirit's renewing power. We saw it in Titus, didn't we? We are saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This freedom from sin's power, it is the evidence, the confirmation that we have also been set free from sin's penalty, justification, and sanctification. They're like the, the light and the heat of the sun, right? When, when the sun begins to shine, the earth begins to warm, right? The light and the heat always go together. Again, John Calvin states it so beautifully, as Christ cannot be torn into parts, he writes, so these two are inseparable, righteousness and sanctification, justification and sanctification. By partaking of Christ, he says, we receive a double grace, namely that being reconciled to God through Christ, grace, his blamelessness, we may have in heaven no longer a judge, but a gracious father. And second, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate a purified life. You see what, what, Paul, what Calvin is saying? He's saying, look, in Jesus Christ, there is always, for the believer, justification and sanctification. In Jesus Christ, as we saw again in Titus 2, grace teaches us. Grace 
trains us to live a godly life. These twin freedoms of justification and sanctification, they fill our hearts with comfort and with confidence because we know that we've been freed from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And so we engage fully in the war against the flesh, against the deeds of the flesh. And we show, therefore, by those works and by that righteousness that we have been justified, that we have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, that we are no longer under the condemnation of sin. We're no longer a prisoner to sin, you see. We're no longer enslaved to those lustful desires. We're no longer enslaved to the desires for for self. God has freed us by his spirit. We don't need to think like or to live like a prisoner any longer. These are the freedoms of our union with Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know them? Do you walk in them day by day? Well, Paul goes on to tell us what, are the found, what is the foundation of those freedoms. And we need to know that so that we will be even more grounded in those freedoms. So look at verse 3 with me, secondly. In verse 3 we read this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here, Paul is beating the same drum that he's been beating the entire letter. Our freedom is not due to God's law that was delivered on Mount Sinai. No, but as he said in chapter seven, this is not due to anything inherently weak or or insufficient in the law itself. No, Paul tells us in seven, chapter 7, verse 12, that God, his law is like himself, holy, righteous, and good. The problem is that we are not holy, righteous, and good. Right? The, the law is impotent to save because we are impotent to obey it. The law cannot set us free. It cannot deliver us from the penalty or the power of sin. It cannot forgive our sins or even give us the, the enabling power to, to keep itself Why? Because as we saw in chapter 7, sin seizes the opportunity through the law to inflame within our hearts all manner of sinful desires, to produce even more sin within us. So outside of Christ, the law only serves to condemn and to inflame more and more unrighteousness. It only shows us that we're guilty and that we are indeed enslaved to sin. But here's the good news, or here's the gospel that Paul wants us to hear. The foundation of those freedoms is that God saw our plight and God took the initiative to act. He did what the law weakened by our sinful flesh could not do. He sent his own son, his one and only son, Jesus, into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. God has acted The foundation of our freedom is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God who was born to conquer sin through his sinless life and his death and his resurrection on behalf of sinners. But notice carefully how Paul phrases this truth of the incarnation of the Son of God. Notice that he says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He doesn't say in the likeness of flesh because that would imply and insinuate that Jesus didn't really become fully man, just came in the likeness of flesh. 
But neither does he say that Jesus came in sinful flesh, because that would mean that Jesus came into the world as a sinner, right? And so Paul says precisely what he needs to say to avoid both of those errors, but also to affirm this vital truth, that the word of God who existed from all eternity in the glory, the majesty, the privileges of deity, he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. He became flesh. He condescended to dwell among us in the same human nature that had sinned. Jesus became the second Adam so that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses, that he might be tempted as we are in all things, yet without sin. For he was holy, he was harmless, he was undefiled. He did not sin. He could not have sinned. And yet the Father sent him for sin, to deal with sin fully and finally as the God-man. And where did he do this? Most particularly, but on the cross, when he died, when the, 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 human, the human Jesus, the God-man, died on the cross. There on the cross, Paul tells us that God condemned sin. Yes, on the cross, Jesus was condemned to death, but also on the cross, sin was condemned to death. What does Paul mean by that, that little phrase? Well, we can understand it in a couple ways. We could understand it this way, that on the cross, God punished his son for our sin as our substitute. On the cross, God poured out the full measure of his wrath against our sin on Jesus so that the penalty against us was canceled because Jesus took that penalty. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for us. But secondly, that little phrase can mean what we saw in verse 2. Right? That, that, that sin was condemned in the flesh in the sense that, that God executed judgment upon sin. Upon sin itself as an evil power. Just like a, a building that is, is unlivable is condemned and demolished. So God condemned and judged and executed the judgment upon sin. Sin's power was broken once and for all on the cross for all who trust in Jesus. The reign of sin was overthrown and vanquished so that we might be set free from its rule and its reign. I think both of these are in Paul's mind. Sin was condemned. Jesus paid the penalty for sin. Sin was condemned. He destroyed the power of sin. Jesus' birth unto death is the foundation of our freedoms. We are free from both the penalty and the power of sin. They have been dealt with forever because Jesus came into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world to free you if you are a believer this morning. If you're united to Jesus Christ, it's all because of what he did. It's all because of what the Father did through his Son and by his Spirit. All glory goes to God. So those are our freedoms. That's the foundation of our freedom. But finally, Paul here shows us the fruit of our freedoms. You see it there in verse 4. It's, it's the, the primary goal that God had in mind in sending his Son to die and to condemn sin in the flesh he says, this all happened in order that 
The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Paul is saying, look, God has freed you from the penalty and the power of sin so that you might experience ongoing freedom from the practice of sin. That you might obey the law of God more and more from the heart. And notice again, go back to verse 3, the law could not do this for you. The law could not even enable you to keep itself, but God's grace has done it. God's grace has enabled you to keep the, the righteous requirements of the law of God. He did not give his law as a means of freeing you, but he gave his law as the rule by which free people live. And if we know that we are already truly free, that we no longer have to struggle to be free, then we are now free to struggle against sin with all of our heart, with all of our might. One more Calvin quote. I've sort of been in Calvin, haven't I, this, this sermon, because he, he speaks so beautifully about these realities. He writes this, Unless you first of all gra grasp what your relationship to God is, and the nature of his judgments concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation, nor one upon which to build piety toward God. He's saying, if you don't understand that you are freed, freed from prison, freed from sin, freed from the penalty and the guilt of sin, declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, and that by his spirit, you've also been freed from sin's power. You'll never be able to live as a free man, as a free woman. But if you know it, if you know that you have been freed, if you know that there is no condemnation, that the, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death, then you will be able to live no longer as a prisoner, but as one who has been gloriously set free. Now, of course, as Paul has already told us in chapter 7, we will never perfectly in this life walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We will never perfectly in this life fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. Romans 7 is always true of us, but so is Romans 8. So is Romans 8. More and more, progressively over time, we will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. We will walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And both of these truths, Romans 7's and Romans 8, right, both of these truths work within the believer this amazing mixture, right, right, a mixture of, of, on the one hand, great, bold optimism, on the other hand, humble realism. And I want you to take those four words and, and sort of mix them up because they're saying the same thing however you say it. Right? All right, on the one hand, the Christian has a bold realism and a humble optimism. Or we might say it like this. We have a bold humility and a humble boldness. <laughs> How about this oxymoron? We have an optimistic realism and a realistic optimism. Right? Both of those things are true. If you are a Christian this morning, because of what God has done in his son and because of indwelling sin, you walk in this life with confidence and with humility, with boldness 
and with humility. You know yourself all too well. Others think they know you, but you know yourself. And so you never let someone say something that is, is or when someone says, you know, you're so good, you're such a good person, you know the truth about yourself. And yet were anyone ever to say, you are a horrible person, you say, well, I know that's true, but I also know, I also know that there is no condemnation for me in Jesus Christ. I also know that the Spirit has set me free from the power of sin. That is true as well. And there is hope, therefore. There is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love this little poem. Don't know who wrote it, but it says this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. That beautifully expresses what Paul is saying here in these first four verses of Romans 8. You are free. Now live free. Live free from guilt, free from shame, free from slavery to sin. If you're a Christian, this can be your reality. If you're not a Christian, then as we read in Titus, you are still enslaved to sin's lusts and pleasures if you're not a Christian, you are still under the penalty of sin. You're still guilty before God, and there's nothing that you can do to change that fact. And so, friend, we plead with you to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. Embrace the reality that is set forth in this text of God's word. Believe the gospel and experience the freedom of the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ, what you have done for sinners. Oh Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who does not believe the gospel, who does not know this freedom in Christ, Lord, would your spirit grant them understanding, a knowledge of sin, a knowledge of the Savior. Oh Lord, our God, for your people, I plead with you that you would help us, oh Lord, to walk in this strange mixture of humility and boldness of optimism and realism. Lord, that we would be able to say with Paul that there's no condemnation for us, that we're set free by the Spirit. But Lord, that we would also be humble, for we know that there are times when we still do walk according to the flesh. But Lord, help us. Give us the grace that we need day by day to fulfill the righteous requirements of your holy law. Help us to walk according to the Spirit. Lord, apart from your grace, apart from Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit, we can do nothing. So Lord, would you keep us dependent upon you? Lord, would you make us to be a people who are quick to confess our sin, but even quicker to run to the grace of the gospel, moment by moment, day by day. Help us to encourage one another to these ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.